Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. In this episode of This Pathological Life, we're working with the title Survivable Chromosomal Calamities. Dr. Travis Brown, welcome to you. Thank you, Steve. Look, I was researching this topic and... Uh, unfortunately, some uncomfortable history comes up, and and I wanted to ask you a question, Steve. Do you do you know the origin of like some of our insult words that we throw around sometimes? I've been the recipient of many. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I wonder, are they based on people? Uh, Shakespeare probably was responsible for some of them. <laughs> Look, it, it, it's one of those ones where. Um, I've, I've given you a, a list of definitions. Now, they're actual medical definitions. So another, a number of them are derived from medical terminology. So if you've got them, just, just have a read out for some of them. So the definition of idiot. Uh, those so defective that the mental development never exceeds that of a normal child of about two years. Right? So it's actually quantified. Uh, imbecile, those whose development is higher than that of an idiot, but whose intelligence does not exceed that of a normal child of about seven years. Moron, those whose mental development is above that of an imbecile, but does not exceed that of a normal child of about 12 years. And cretin, this was a specific type of idiot, in inverted commas, associated with deafness, mutism, imbecility and large goiters. They were of simple disposition and believed to be protecting angels sent by heaven. So these are definitions from, they're medical definitions from the 18 and 1900s that were used in that way. So when people, uh, it was in a time when you would label people as this. So this was a, a diagnosis uh, used in medical. Unfortunately, anything with intellectual reduction or anything you attach a label and then of course that goes into pejorative terms and becomes a an insult so cretinism is a form that i've never heard used before but that was for people with congenital hypothyroidism and they would have a disease that because their thyroid wasn't working properly they wouldn't develop properly properly so they would have a short stature and a goiter so you know the the swollen you know thyroid uh idiots imbecile and moron uh, moron well they were terms used in asylums uh, and so the, the whole point of this means that when it comes back to it, we'll put this into context, but it, it is reflective of the time. And so these ended up starting to be out of favour in the 1960s when then they started using the term people had mental retardation. So again, another label. Um, we're getting better with time, but we're still learning to navigate this area. So... This podcast is about uh, chromosomal abnormalities, uh, the, the impact it has on families and, and children, um, the importance of screening tests that we currently have, and later on we'll discuss with Professor Graham Southers about uh, the NIPT, so non-invasive prenatal testing that, that's available. But first I want to take a look at the, the most prevalent 
uh, of all this, which is trisomy 21, which we now know as Down syndrome. Now, the background for this is when, when we talk about chromosomes, everyone has usually 23 paired chromosomes. So that's 22 what we say autosomal and one pair of sex. So the sex is the one that determines whether male, female. And then 22, uh, all the rest, everything else goes into that in that area. So when you're talking about things like testosterone, it's on the Y chromosome, and that's why you get male uh, physical features. So when we're talking about chromosomes, we tend to say 46 as the total number of chromosomes, and then just denote what sex chromosome they have. So 46XX means they have 46 chromosomes. XX is the 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 sex specification of that that so xx is female xy is male so when we look at down syndrome the population in australia is we have about 13,000 to 15,000 people about 1 in 1,100 babies are born with down syndrome which makes it approximately 290 babies per year affected their life expectancy has increased over the last 50 years to about 60 years now. Uh, and we know that the increase of Down syndrome is associated to maternal age. So if we have a 20-year-old woman, she has a risk in 1 in 1,400 chance of having a baby affected by Down syndrome. If we have a mother who is 45 years old, her risk is about 1 in 30 we do have evidence of uh, Down syndrome through the history. So there is a pottery artifact from a culture from Colombia, which is a, a Tumacola Tolida culture that actually has a pottery uh, artifact that depicts features of a, a, a child, a young child at the age of about, I think, four or five, that looks like they have Down syndrome. Uh, there's even an excavation from a, a child skeleton in eastern France, estimated to be in 5th to 6th century, uh, with the same features. So this has existed through history. But the person that we take the most note of uh, is uh, Dr. John Langdon Down. And he had a description in 1866. The face is flat and broad and destitute of prominence. The cheeks are roundish and extended laterally. The eyes are obliquely placed and the internal canthi, the distance between the eyes, more than normally distanced from one another. The tongue is long, thick and much roughened. The nose is small. The skin has a slight yellowish texture and is deficient in elasticity, giving the impression of being too large for the body. That is a, is a very good description from 1866. Uh, he also noted during this that the, the, these children had a developmental delay. They had some poor coordination and a, and a reduced life expectancy. Uh, they were, seemed to be prone to infections like TB. And, and these were remarkably accurate observations, uh, still relevant. Uh, we do know that they have developmental delay, we do know that they have an impaired immune system and so are at increased risk of serious infections. Uh, the, now we have classifications. They do have 40% uh, uh, of people with uh, trisomy 21 have a congenital heart disease. They have an increased risk of acute myeloid leukemia, their blood. 
some of them will have actually what we call a, a transient abnormal myelopoiesis. So their blood, when they're neonates, so babies, can look like uh, acute myeloid leukemia that resolves, but a 20 to 30 percent of them will develop uh, acute myeloid leukemia in, in one to three years. Um, and they, if they get over the age of 40, uh, they have a neurological, degenerative neurological uh, syndrome that looks like Alzheimer's. So aside from the clinical aspects of it, uh, he was very accurate. And we, we also know that children with Down syndromes are often very shy, um, have a very gentle nature, um, and are often more content than their uh, non-affected siblings. They seem to be more content with life, which, which is an interesting, you know, observation. I want to take just some time to look at John Langdon Down. So he was a he was a man born in 1828, and his father had had three failed businesses. He was taken out of school at the age of 14 to work in the shop. And at the age of 18, he had a life-changing experience. He was out with his family on one afternoon, and they encountered heavy rain and were forced to take shelter at a college. And later on, he wrote, I was brought into contact with a feeble-minded girl who waited on our party and for whom the question haunted me, could nothing be done for her? I had then not entered on a medical student's career, but ever and anon, the remembrance of that hapless girl presented itself to me, and I longed to do something for her kind. So this experience changed his life. He went to London. He became uh, an apprentice to a surgeon, where he learnt some of the skills of bloodletting, applying blisters, uh, extracting teeth. Uh, and dispensing simple medicines. So again, you know, pre-anesthetic time, so I can't imagine that being too much fun for anyone, but that's what it was. He enrolled in a course with the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Uh, He had two professional examinations taken in one year, which I'm guessing was abnormal at the time because they took note of it. Uh, So he did very well, but then returned to his father's shop and he developed a whole bunch of uh, products that he would sell over the counter, which you know, boosted sales in his father's shop. But in 1853, when John was 25, his father died. Now, in the literature, it suggests that his father probably didn't want him to do medicine. And so this then suddenly allowed him to do medicine. And so he did pursue a career in, uh, and went to the Medical School of London Hospital and turned out to be a brilliant student. He topped, in his final year, he topped the class in medicine, surgery, obstetrics, and was the best student of the year. And when he finished, he was appointed medical superintendent of the Royal Asylum for Idiots. And again, that's the terminology that was used for the day. This was one of the largest uh, asylums in England, and uh, it had received some bad press. Uh, It had been criticised, now this is a bit unusual, but criticised by the Lunacy Commission... Uh, that was responsible for patient welfare given to them by the Lunacy Act of 1845. So, <laughs> And now we know why Monty Python hails from that country. It's, as I say, the terminology is so strange to get your mind around, but what they classified is this was a place that housed 400 madmen and idiots. John turned up and what he found there was upsetting to him. 
children were in the asylum and they lived in a room, uh, in rooms of up to 15 to 20 children in one place. It had very poor hygiene. Uh, There were lots of forbidden items to have. Corporal punishment was rife. And they had a high mortality rate, uh, often to things like typhus and TB. Now, John went in and he improved every aspect of that asylum. He had new staff. He got hygiene as a top priority. He was prohibited all punishment and rewarded good behaviour. He involved them in writing tasks, and this would have been across the asylum, um, arts and craft. And it was like remarkably progressive for the time. But there is an interesting point that, that I noted when looking through all this. There was one significant influence for John, John Downs, and there was a prominent German professor, Johann Blumenbach. Now, he was interested, he was, a, he was an author and had written a few theses. He was interested in human genetic variation. And what happened at the time was he theorized that the human development was geographical based. So he was also a craniologist. So he had a, a collection, I think, of up to 60 skulls that you would measure size and uh, bumps and infer all kinds of things like intelligence on. And by the time the, his third thesis out, he had refined it down to that there were five genetic varieties of humans. These were Caucasians, Mongolian, Ethiopians, Americans and Malays. So the world could be classified into those five variants. Now, using this principle, Dr. John Down applied to the occupants of the asylum. And so there is photographs, and they're actually quite striking, beautiful photographs, of over 200 of the inhabitants, of them looking well-dressed, almost portrait style. You can see them today on the internet. And he wrote a classification of these people on a report. Of all of that, using the information you know, from one of the leading professors of the time, he went ahead and he classified and created an ethnic classification of idiots. That was the article he wrote. And he noted that there was the great Mongolian family. And he he exclaimed how similar all the patients looked. So marked is this that when placed side by side, it's difficult to believe the specimens compared are not children of the same parents. So there is a similarity appearance. Now, this is genetic based, as we know now, but they assigned it to a race. Again, one of those five genetic variants that they had put in at the time. In a later article termed Mental Affections of Childhood and Youth, he classified them as a mongoloid idiot. And it's a striking term, would <laughs> unsettling, but that was as best knowledge they had at the time. They were classifying someone with below-level intelligence into one of the five races. At the same time, John's wife Mary was volunteering at Earlswood Asylum, And she was organising things for amusement and uh, recitals and even concerts for the the children. Uh, 
John approached the lords of Earlwoods to pay for Mary, but they refused because she was a volunteer and volunteers are not paid. Eventually, this relationship got into some pretty uh, bad territory. And when the lords refused to financially support an exhibit of the the children's handiwork and handicrafts at a Paris exhibit, uh, he ended up resigning. And that then took them and they went down a path of going, what do we want to do? What they ended up finding was a large home in Kings Road in Hampton Wick that they ended up calling to this day, it's called uh, Normansfield. And they converted this house into a home for the mentally disabled. They approached rich families to house their affected children, but the families had to agree to have their children privately educated. In 1868, they opened with 19 children. They had bankers, physicians, nobility, and high army officers with their their children. And it was an immediate success. The children were taught at the highest standard. They were able to learn to ride horses, clean stables, grow vegetables and fruit, collect eggs, milk cows. There were crafts. They even added a small theatre, which is there to this day. In 1876, there were 106 occupants. And in 1896, there was 160. At the age of 67, Dr. John Down died. And he had almost what could be inferred is a a mini state funeral from the town of Hampton Wick. Uh, They had veiled horses that pulled a black carriage through the streets. Uh, All the shops closed their doors and all curtains were lowered. Uh, Mourners gathered by the street. Uh, He was cremated and later, when his wife, Mary, died, uh, their ashes were, were scattered together. In 1959, a French geneticist, Dr. Jerome Lyon, I hope I'm saying that right, <laughs> identified the underlying cause for Down syndrome. And this was an extra chromosome for the number 21. There was no association found with any genetics of any race associated with it. And so in 1960s, a group of geneticists wrote an open letter to the Lancet and suggested that the name should be changed. Uh, Dr. John Langdon Down's grandson, who was head of Normansville at the time, was approached and he was asked if they could use the family name for the syndrome. He agreed. And in 1965, the World Health Organization confirmed the change. We now know this as Down syndrome. We have a good foundation now in down syndrome but of course there are other syndromes coming under the microscope in this episode travis uh, let's walk through some of them so we'll just mention some of the history and when they were identified because again we don't have the time to go through each one in 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 depth even though each one requires its own uh discussion but we'll just mention them through so the the first one so the the survivable chromosomal abnormalities prominence is the special numbers 13 18 21 so we have trisomy 13 trisomy 18 and trisomy 21 so we'll go for the first one trisomy 13 so this is known as bartholin pato syndrome or just often called pato syndrome and this was first described in 1657 but before we go to the quote i'll just say that from a from a epidemiological perspective this is a rare condition it's about one in five thousand to fifteen thousand uh births 
And we know that these affected children uh, mostly die before the age of one. Uh, and most will die within weeks or months of them being born. They have cardiac and renal defects. They have small eyes, a cleft palate or a cleft lip. They'll have an extra finger and they have affected feet called rocker bottom feet. But when we look back in the history, there is the first description from Thomas Bartholin, which is from 1657. Case 47. The Monster Without Eyes. In a town in Sweden, a monster was born of honest parentage. In the parturition, everything passed off well, but the child had no eyes. There was a wide open void of red colour. The nose broad and oblong, from which a tumour protruded, one part bony, the other part fleshy, without nostrils. The mouth wide and deformed. The upper maxilla seemed to consist of one bone. Both hands had six fingers, as had the left foot. By pitiable and continual howling, the child attracted everybody's compassion until it breathed its last. So that is a really heartbreaking description of an affected child with trisomy 13. Now, no one would have known what was going back then, and particularly if they call it the, the monster. Um, but that is an apt description of an affected child with trisomy 13. Similarly, trisomy 18, named after Dr. John Hilton Edwards, uh, who identified it in 1960, we have children. Now, this occurs at about 1 in 3,000 to 1 in 8,000 births. Uh, these children also have affected cardiac and renal abnormalities. They have small, uh, small ears, a small chin, a short neck, and affected feet. And again, most don't live beyond one year. So those cover the significant trisomy, autosomal trisomies, that we screen for. There are other areas that are considered, and we'll, look, we'll just briefly mention them. One is Klinefelter syndrome. So this is a, a chromosome of 47XXY. So it's a male, uh, phenotypically, so the physical features of a male, but they have an extra X chromosome. And this was noted first by Dr. Harry Kleinfelter, and he wrote a report in 1942 of nine men, and he described they had small testis, they had poor testicular development, they had reduced or no sperm, and they had some breast development. So in 1959, Patricia Jacobs identified that they had this extra X chromosome. And the patients had tall stature, increased long legs, increased leg length. They had hypogonadism, so small testis. Now, they had some mildly intellectual impairment. But what we found is that this occurs about one in 500 live male births. And the abnormality seems to come 50% from sperm, and 50% from the egg, the oocyte. And the majority, you might even hear us term, call the term mosaicism, which means that there's a mix of probably 46XY and 47XX7. So you'd call it mosaic uh, chromosomes, which means that sometimes people, if they've got mix of, quote, normal versus non-normal, that they can have a less severe appearance or less, less affected. Um, so you'll hear that term 
discussed quite a bit in, in genetic circumstances. They may not even be detected until initially puberty because they have issues either going through puberty or later in life when they find out they have trouble with fertility and infertility. People with Klinefelter syndrome have an increased risk by about 20 times of breast cancer. They get increased risk of testicular tumours and they'll have increased risk of autoimmune disease such as SLE. The last one I'll just mention uh, with any type of detail is Turner syndrome. And this is where we have uh, women who are a chromosome makeup of 45X0. So they only have one X. This was noted by Dr. Henry Turner in 1938, who published a report in the Journal of Endocrinology of seven patients, six who were adolescents and one adult. And he said they had infantilism, congenitally webbed neck and uh, an affected arm. He called it cubital valgaris, which means just his, the forearm tilts out further than what you would normally expect. So we know this occurs now about one in 2,000 live female births. Uh, these people have short stature, a thickened neck and broad chest. And clinically, they have small ovaries. They do often have issues with what we say amenorrhea, so they don't have their period. Infertility, 30% will go through puberty uh, and 2% will even get their period. But the vast majority will have ovarian insufficiency and need assistance with either hormone replacement to, for height and well as hormone replacement for going through puberty. Uh, we also know they have congenital heart problems, uh, one thing that's called coarctation of the aorta, so it gets a bit thinner, uh, and they can have renal and urinary tract problems. The only other ones I'll mention, not in any great depth, uh, is Jacob's syndrome, which is an XYY, so they have an extra Y chromosome, and then triple X syndrome, XXX, so uh, women who will have an extra X chromosome, um, and the only other one to mention is a, a 22Q deletion syndrome. These are all abnormalities of the chromosome that are survivable, and in some cases, they're not even symptomatic, but they're important for us to know about and to see what we can do for these patients in the future. The deeper we go into this, the, the more happy I am with the fact that I live in blissful ignorance for so many of these things, you know, touch wood, uh, because those numbers aren't big. As That's actually uh, one in 3,000 is not rare. Let's get ready for the professor to join us. Thank you. We're being joined now for this discussion by Professor Graham Southers. He's National Director of Genetics with Sonic Healthcare, also with a background in paediatrics, clinical genetics and genetic pathology. Graham, welcome to This Pathological Life. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for being here, Graham. Look, I wanted to ask you a few things uh, about the non-invasive prenatal testing and, and how that works. Can you explain, I guess, for someone in my circumstance how, how it actually works because it seems quite interesting because you take blood from the mother and then you test fetal 
DNA. Is that right? That's right, uh, Travis. So the, the situation in one sense is not unusual. When we do maternal serum screening, the conventional biochemical screening for, for Down syndrome, we're taking a sample of the mother's blood and checking for uh, hormones that are produced by the placenta and the fetus. So we're picking up, if you will, a, a fetal signal from the mother's blood with that routine biochemical test. What changed about 20 years ago was the realisation that there are fragments of DNA in the mother's circulation that also come from the placenta. If we step back a moment, there are fragments of DNA in everyone's plasma. As cells break down and are, are, um, divide and produce again, there is a continual loss and then uptake of DNA fragments from our circulation. So that's a normal phenomenon. But what is particularly useful during pregnancy is that a portion of those DNA fragments in the maternal plasma have in fact come from the placenta and in that sense can reflect the fetal genotype rather than the maternal genotype. Right, so we're actually testing placenta as opposed to fetus? So. Yeah, look, at the, the, that's a, a good point because we, um, in, in this field, we usually talk about you know, the fetal fraction or the fetal DNA, um, and that has become the norm. To be strictly correct, it is actually placental DNA primarily that we're looking at. I think that that's a, a, a reasonable assumption to, or to regard the two as being equivalent for most purposes because both the fetus and placenta have come from the same fertilised egg. So that um, provided the placenta and the fetus read the textbook and, and follow the rules, we should be okay by inferring the fetal genotype from understanding the placental genotype. But therein lies a limitation because there are occasions where the two do not exactly match and that sets a limit on the accuracy of this sort of study of the fetus by checking the maternal blood. Right. So is that a big, significant sort of percentage or is it a small percentage where there's sort of a, an error? It depends, um, in a sense, who's asking the question. Right. If, we, if you were the Minister for Health or responsible for some sort of national program of uh, NIPT, then the false negatives and false positives because of this placental fetal discord, um, that would be sufficiently small that you could potentially ignore that, at least from a numbers point of view. So the great majority of the time, the what you find from the placental DNA will accurately reflect what you would get if you were analysing the fetus. However, if you were a mother or father in the situation where you're wanting confidence about your individual result, then that becomes critically important that you know what degree of potential inaccuracy there is. So I say potential inaccuracy, the, the, um, the problem areas are, are certainly very infrequent. But there are problem areas. So um, a, con a standard um, issue, I guess, with NIPT is what is the chance of having a false positive? That is to say, where the placenta sends a signal that we pick up in the, the bloodstream, which says the, uh, there is a, a risk of one of the trisomies, let's say Down syndrome, trisomy 21. What is the risk of that being a false positive where the fetus is in fact chromosomally normal? And we now know that about one in 3,000 or so normal, chromosomally normal fetuses will have a trisomy 21 in the placenta sufficient to trigger NIPT. So that sets a biological limit to the accuracy of a normal result yeah, okay. and of an abnormal result. 
The converse is perhaps can be a bit more concerning that if we, we were to look at a population of uh, fetuses that have Down syndrome, um, half to one percent of those will have chromosomally normal placental DNA. Right. Okay. And so that could give you a false negative. Yeah. So those are, are real numbers, and that is certainly our experience. Sonic has done a lot of uh, NIPT now, and we have identified a number of false negatives where the NIPT was very clearly no trisomy identified, where at birth the baby was found to have trisomy. And we've been able to look at the placentas from a number of these uh, instances and been able to document that, in fact, there is trisomy, for whichever one it is, in the placenta, even though it's not present in the fetus. Right. But those are very, very unusual instances when you look across the the tens of thousands that we've yeah. been looking at. But NIPT in itself isn't the only marker that we use. So you also have ultrasound Correct. and other other measures that you correlate that with. Is that that's right? Yeah, look, that's a really important point because it's important to recognise that uh, there are very few pathology tests where you would say the pathology test is sufficient in its own irrespective of whatever else is going on to actually make a diagnosis. You actually want to look for a constellation of factors that come together. Now, the pathology test that you're doing may be a very important part of that constellation, even the dominant part of that constellation, but you'd be a brave clinician to say it's the only element to consider. And so that's the case with an IPT too, that it, it is best to regard it as a screening test. It's a very, very good screening test, but it is not a diagnostic test. And so there is always the possibility that there will be other information that cuts across the NIPT result, if you will, and should cause the wary clinician to say, hang on, let me just check this from another perspective, whether it be ultrasound, whether it be the first trimester screening, whether it be an amniocentesis, to actually confirm what is going on before any major decisions are made. Now, what conditions are we talking about specifically for NIPT? Like, we've discussed the history of them, but what, what conditions are we, are we diagnosing on the report for clinicians? So, um, I'm going to need to date stamp my answer. <laughs> and the reason I have to date stamp my answer is that the, the answer to this question is changing over time. And some of those changes are good and appropriate. Some of them might be premature. Some of them might take us down a rabbit hole. Some of them will turn out ultimately to be really useful or, in fact, maybe we should not do them at all. So that's why we, I need to put some caution um, signs around my answer. Um, the, the trigger for NIPT, or really sort of the foundation for NIPT, was screening for Down syndrome and also so trisomy 21 and also trisomy 13 and trisomy 18 because those had been the, if you will, the, the flagship conditions that we were looking for with maternal serum screening and ultrasound over the last 30 or 40 years. And uh, NIPT was introduced to address those particular conditions and as it turns out those particular conditions are ones that are now recognized to be really quite tractable we can we can do that with NIPT and so that remains those three um, autosomal trisomies remain the primary target of NIPT in principle you could look for other things as well so it is possible to look for uh, abnormalities in the number of X and Y chromosomes in the developing fetus. And that carries different uh, considerations because abnormalities in the number of sex chromosomes do not carry the same clinical consequences as abnormalities in the number of uh, autosomes. So it can be done, but it does need a, a separate consideration. It is also possible to look for abnormalities in 
other chromosomes and to look, for example, for trisomy 15 or trisomy 7. Now, you're not going to find a, um, a, a live-born child at term with those trisomies, but you can find those trisomies in the placenta, and that can potentially compromise placental function. So there are some providers who are now providing that sort of assessment. In Sonic, we recognise that this may have clinical utility down the track, but it's one of those situations where we're not persuaded that yet that that is um, a, a wise thing to do, because there's still, I think, a fair amount of work to be done to clarify exactly how useful that is. So you'll hear how I've gone from confident to, yeah, maybe do this type of testing to... Uh, in our hands, we would recommend pause. Um, by the way, I want to emphasise that, that this is why I date stamp my answer, because next year I may have a different response to your question, and I reserve the right to change my <laughs> mind. <laughs> um, and the other dimension of this is not so much to look at whole chromosomes, but to look at bits of chromosomes. So is it possible to look for um, not the addition of an entire chromosome or the absence of an entire chromosome, but can we look for a duplication or a deletion of part of a chromosome and, and I am amazed at the technical prowess that the the laboratory um, boffins can bring to bear on this and there is some extraordinary stuff that they're doing and I think that there is a place for this but again I'm going to be cautious in my um, uh, affirmation of this type of testing because it'll vary in my, my confidence in the result will vary according to the size of the deletion that you're looking for and the frequency of deletion. And if you're looking for something that's really rare, most of the positives you're going to get out of NIPT will be false positives. And what do you do with that? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that there is a place for um, careful micro-deletion testing with NIPT. I am wary of just going out and looking for anything. There's a caution here or a sense here in which you need to be careful what you wish for. I think it's much better to have a defined question that you ask of pathology and then hopefully get a defined answer. If you go fishing for any answer where you haven't answered the question, you can get into trouble. <laughs> so with the, the report that comes out at the moment, there'll be trisomy 21, 13, 18. Yes. Do we, are we going down the path of Jacob syndrome, so XYY and triple X, so XXX, or even uh, Q22 deletion? Are we reporting on that at the moment or are we planning to which so we have the in sonic we have the capacity to do all of those um and the, the the way we frame it is that the primary task the primary purpose that is being asked of uh, nrpt is to check for those three autosomal trisomies so that's the default that every report includes and then it is up for the requesting doctor to make a decision in consultation with the patient as to whether the patient wants to know about the potential for a sex chromosome aneuploidy, which would cover a Turner syndrome, XO, a Kleinfelter syndrome, XXY, XYY, Jacobs syndrome, and triple X syndrome. And then, although these are a lot less common, there are a smattering of other more complex variations in sex chromosome number that can be detected. So the key thing is that that needs to be a, a considered decision, a choice by the requesting doctor that this patient wants to go down that path. And that's important because the, the clinical impact of these sex chromosome aneuploidies is a lot milder than what we see for the autosomes. So does the patient want to actually buy into that discussion and consideration and ask an answer the question is what am i going to do with this information or not 
And so I think that it's important that they, that not be done just as a blanket routine. It's not a job lot where everyone gets everything. You need to make a considered decision as to whether this patient wants this information. And similarly, it would be a matter of deciding whether this patient wants to know about the 22Q deletion. That too is not a, um, it, it's not as clear a clinical situation as it is for the autosomal trisomies. Because Jacob's syndrome and triple X go into a controversial category as to whether it's actually a syndrome or not. Because I, I remember reading an article about Jacob's syndrome. I think it was an article in the US where they said, oh, there was a uh, an association with, you know, the uh, super... Uh, so the supermen, yeah, yeah, well, super you know, testosterone, yeah, super male, right. yeah, XYY, yeah, you yeah. know, the, the double testosterone dose type thing. Yes. So these were people were, you know, had aggression issues or something to that effect, and they tested, turned out to be a prison population, and therefore they found a, a skewed uh, population, and then they made an assumption or a, a conclusion that these people therefore were aggressive and they were more likely to cause. But that doesn't seem to have borne out to be true. And, and that's a really important caution, Travis, because the um, abnormalities in the number of sex chromosomes is, is far more subtle than abnormalities in autosomes. And look, we see this in day-to-day life. Half of the world's population is not blessed with a second X chromosome. Or conversely, half of the world's population is burdened by having an extra X chromosome. So there is something about these sex chromosomes that, that doesn't carry the same weight in terms of, of medical consequences as the other chromosomes. So we know that XY and XX, the, the male-female divide I alluded to there a moment ago, um, they're, they're not pathology. There are differences in the chromosomes, but they're not pathological. And if we add an extra X chromosome or an extra Y chromosome, it doesn't make a lot of difference. It can make some difference, and so I referred a moment ago to Turner syndrome and Kleinfelter syndrome, and they're at the more severe spectrum of sex chromosome, of the common sex chromosome aneuploidies, if you will. But even so, they're, they're relatively mild. Um, that if you have a child with Turner syndrome, then she is a girl, but she's infertile and she is at high risk of having um, a congenital heart disease and potentially other malformations or um, medical problems later in life. But they're generally manageable and there is a lot of good data now about how to manage children with that condition and there are plenty of um, you know, active, engaged, intelligent, productive members of our population who have Turner syndrome. So I think it's important, we may, may be realistic to, to view it as a, um, as a disorder but it's a comparatively mild disorder to uh, trisomy 13 or 18 that we've touched on previously. Similarly with Kleinfelter syndrome, this is XXY, and the, the men who have this are clearly men, but they are infertile, and there is a slightly increased uh, chance of some relatively subtle learning difficulties in this population. But remember that most people with learning difficulties in our population who have normal IQ, but they do have learning difficulties, don't have XXY. Um, so these are, are relatively common problems that we see in our community anyway, and that would be a subject for another discussion as to why that is. If we move then to XYY, and remember the Y chromosome is the smallest chromosome, there is really little evidence now that that constitutes um, a significant hazard 
to the health and well-being. Again, there may be a suggestion of an, an increase, slight increase in the risk of certain learning difficulties, but you don't need to go far, very far down Main Street to find other boys, men, who've had learning difficulties who do not have XYY, Jacobs syndrome. So I'm very wary of applying uh, the, the label of disorder to that condition. I think a man who has XYY, he has, certainly has a chromosome abnormality in the sense that that's not the usual chromosome number. But whether he has a clinical abnormality, I think that there's not really a strong case to answer there. And the same applies to triple X syndrome. That is clearly a chromosome abnormality. But when you come to for, look at a cohort of women who have triple X syndrome, you'll be hard pressed to find really hard evidence of a hard problem. So here we have a dilemma, and this is, I come back to the challenge of, of doing NIPT for the sex chromosome and disorders, um, and emphasise that these are disorders of sex chromosomes, not of the people who have them. That's where um, it does require, I think, an informed discussion with the, uh, with the woman, potentially her partner, about this. And to that end, it's important that doctors have access to um, you know, ready, very readable information that captures the key um, things about these particular conditions so that you're not having to have this sort of face-to-face -face discussion. It would be a very long consultation. But there is information available on websites, whether it be the Sonic Genetics website or other websites, that uh, clinicians can use to provide to patients and say, is this something that you would be concerned about? If it is, then we can talk about NIPT. If it's not, then we'll leave that off the agenda. Now, one of the conditions we talk about uh, today is Dr. Edwards, uh, so trisomy 18. Mm. Now, you've met Dr. Edwards. I, I did have the privilege of meeting uh, John Edwards a few times. Uh, this, was, this was a while ago now. I must say, talking about John Edwards in that way, Travis, makes me feel older <laughs> than I'd like to think I am. <laughs> Well, you see, the interesting thing is there's, there's a key date that keeps on coming up with all of this, looking at when they were discovered. This is 1960. This is 1959, 1960. There must have been an explosion of discovery. And I mean, it must have been a, like a whirlwind time that everyone sort of, you know, they found when all of these things. So everyone must, must have gone looking. But what was Dr. Edwards like? So look, you're right, the, um, and I wasn't doing genetics in 1960, um, <laughs> but uh, it was certainly a, an incredibly productive time. Um, and people had been uh, thinking about genetics um, as, a, as a discipline, as a science, uh, for about 60 years at that point. Um, Mendel had, um, it was almost 100 years earlier, so that the, the seeds, if you will, of genetics as a science had, been, uh, had begun to germinate. Um, a long time before then. But most of the work about um, human genetics was really happening, uh, or about genetics, I should say, it was happening in the non-human arena. And so there was a lot of work being done um, in animal genetics and fruit fly. And because no one had access to DNA technology at that time, this was being done by inference. So you would you know, take a to use Mendel's example, you would take a, a tall pea and a short pea plant, cross them and see what came out, and you were inferring what the genetics were from observations. So there was a lot of interest in the mathematics around this, but it was really hard to translate that into human genetics because humans resist the idea of taking a tall man and a dwarf woman and pairing them and looking at the outcome to try and get a mathematical model of the genetics of height. Um, so it, it, the, the very complexity and the, the random nature of, of mating in, in human societies means that it was really quite challenging to work out what was going on. 
Um, now, John Edwards, and I didn't know this at the time I met him, I sort of found out subsequently that he had uh, trained as a doctor and at one point gone on a, um, a, a, an Arctic expedition. Um, he was the ship's doctor as a, as a young doctor. And when he came back, he was diagnosed as having um, TB and needed to have some enforced bed rest for a number of months as part of the, the then therapy for that. And uh, John Edwards being John Edwards, he used that to study up on the statistics of genetics as one does when you're on your sickbed. Um, and it's perhaps typical of the man that he was able to bring his clinical training and this very analytical training, and then in 1960 brought it to bear um, in, in seeing a child who had some features but not all of the features of what was Down syndrome and due to be recognised then. Uh, to be an extra copy of chromosome 21 that had been found in 1959 and he saw a child who had something similar but not quite the same and that was shown to be an extra copy of chromosome 18 um, and uh, that was uh, identified and written up and um, came with the moniker of Edward Syndrome uh, and Edward Syndrome after John Edwards so I think that he was um, in a sense a, an archetype of the the thoughtful clinician scientist just at the point when genetics went Kaboom. So um, it was some uh, 30 years later that I met him and, and he was the um, archetypal uh, British intellectual. He was uh, very bright, clearly had a very busy internal brain, sort of going buzz, buzz, buzz whenever you have a, a conversation with him. He was notoriously absent-minded, so the, you know, it fitted the, the archetype beautifully, um, but clearly uh, very intelligent and I think that uh, you know, he made a great contribution not only in this but in other areas of, of human genetics in doing that translation of, of, of aligning this sort of mathematical statistical approach to the real world of the uh, of people in front of him who had particular problems well, look i wanted to thank you for coming in today and, and talking to us uh, one day we'll get into the ethical situation of genetics as i say that that one clearly is uh, one i'm dying to have a discussion about sure. uh, but uh, thank you very much for coming we really appreciate it you're most welcome this Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives when applicable can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there. And we'd love to have you along.